COVID four weeks ago, which resulted in a couple of Sundays off. And now this Sunday, I'm actually in Taupo visiting my mum with permission from the council. So although I'm not with you physically, I'm here in spirit. Unlike the minister who rang up the service leader early one Sunday morning and said he was sick and resting at home and had left his sermon on YouTube to show at the appropriate moment in the service. He then left his home, put his golf clubs in the back of the car and went off to a town 40 kilometers away to play some golf. As he was about to tee off, he heard some church bells ringing in the town. He felt rather guilty. He said a very brief prayer, and then he settled down and teed off and hit a beautiful drive right down the fairway with a tailwind behind him. The ball bounced about three times, once over a bunker. It rolled onto the green and into the hole. Wow, a hole in one. He'd never had a hole in one in his life before. Now the angels looking down on this were absolutely disgusted that God had allowed him to get away with a hole in one. They complained to the Lord about the minister playing hooky on his congregation. But God turned to them and smiled and said, I can hear your disapproval, but who can he possibly share this good news with? Well, I'm not on the golf course this morning. I can assure you I'm in Taupo with my mum. So let's turn to Revelation 20. When you see this on TV, what do you think about? Well, of course, it's a referee's signal about a video action replay of an incident that's happened in a professional game of sport, like cricket or rugby or soccer or tennis or whatever. Well, in the 38th minute of a famous soccer match this year between New Zealand and Costa Rica in Qatar, where New Zealand were trying to qualify for the World Cup, there was an incident leading up to a goal which New Zealand scored. New Zealand scored this amazing goal against uh, Costa Rica to draw the match at that point. But the Costa Ricans complained to the referee. So the referee went back, he had a look at VAR, he looked at it from about five angles, from above, from in front, from sideways on, from behind, in slow motion, and then he went back onto the field and he made a decision. And the decision was, it was not a goal. Poor old New Zealand. So what has VAR got to do with Revelation 20? Well, the book of Revelation is a vision by John of Jesus Christ and the things to come. It's a book of hope. Hope in Christ in the face of great difficulty and suffering. It was written to Christians of the day who faced massive opposition and difficulty living in a very secular world. But it was encouraging them to say that God is in control, that Jesus Christ has won the victory over evil, and that one day there would be a judgment and all evil will be dispelled. Throughout Revelation, we have these replays 
these flashbacks, if you like, the reality of evil, the victory of Christ and his people in the face of persecution, and a coming judgment. Revelation 20 is a flashback, and it ends with the good news that evil will be banished. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and in verse 14, we read these words. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Now, in your pews, you have a good news Bible. And if you'd like to take those out for a minute and turn to page 321, what you will see here, I'll give you some time just to do that, is you'll see a little summary or a breakup, if you like, of that passage. So it's page 321 in your Good News Pew Bibles. I'll let you just find that. So if you look at this on page 321, you will see that Revelation 20 is divided into three sections. The thousand years from verses 1 to verse 6, the defeat of Satan from verse 7 to verse 10, and then the final judgment from verse 11 through to verse 15. You see the first part of it, the millennium. Um, the word millennium is a term that's used to describe this thousand years. It comes from the Latin word milli, meaning a thousand, and annum, which means um, years. And the millennium has become quite a contentious issue in church interpretation of Revelation. And I'm just going to touch on that very briefly. It's quite difficult to interpret. There are mainly three schools of thought. There's the amillennialist view, there's the postmillennialist view, and there's the premillennialist view. Each one of them is associated particularly with the second coming of Christ and what happens before or after that. And we're going to come to that. So, very briefly, these are what the three views hold. The post-millennial view, the Latin word uh, post means after, they believe that Christ will return after a millennium, after a thousand-year reign, which will be a golden age when most of the world will be converted to Christianity. Secondly, there's the premillennialist view, pre meaning in Latin before, Christ, before Christ returns, there will be a millennium, a, a, a thousand-year reign of, of Christianity spreading throughout the world, and then there will be a tribulation, and then Christ will return. And then thirdly, there is the amillennialist view. A means no, no millennium. In other words, the amillennialists believe there is not an actual 1,000-year uh, reign of Christ. They believe that the last 2,022 years have actually been the present reign of Christ with his faithful followers during the time between Christ's first and second coming. There are some who jokingly say there's the pan-millennium 
and they're the ones who believe that everything will pan out just fine at the end. (laughs) Now, the view that the preaching team has been taken on the millennium is the amillennial view. In other words, it's not a literal 1,000 years. Now, why are we saying that? Remember that in the book of Revelation, numbers are used to signify something. So, for example, you get seven used a lot in the book of Revelation, signifying perfection. We get the number six, hence the number 666, which is not perfection. So the mark of the beast is 666. It signifies that it's not perfect. And, of course, we get the number 12 appearing. So we get, for example, the 12 tribes of Israel and the the, the 12 disciples, and that represents the totality of the church, And so, for example, the word a thousand years here is not an actual number, but it represents a long time. So the amillennial view, which we are taking, is that with Christ's first coming, the millennium actually started at that time. The kingdom of God was established at that time, and Satan's power, if you look at verses 1 to 5, you'll see that Satan is bound. And so you see that Satan's power was bound when Jesus Christ came. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. When Jesus was empowered by the Spirit, we see him going into the wilderness and him resisting temptation. The devil is sent away. We see Jesus casting out demons from people, overcoming them, telling them to be quiet and sending them off, and they go. We see Jesus being totally obedient to God's will, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, going to the cross. Satan's power is bound because Jesus has come into the world. Not only that, Jesus Christ gave his disciples power and authority over evil by imparting to them the blessed Holy Spirit, the anointing and blessing of God. They are given power to rule over Satan and his minions. This is what Jesus said to Peter. When Peter said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, he said, on this rock, on this revelation... I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And when the 72 had gone out to heal the sick, and they came back and reported the wonderful things that had happened, Jesus said this, I saw Satan fall like fire. Listen, I've given you authority so that you can walk on snakes and scorpions and overcome the power of the enemy. So the picture here of the millennium is this, that Christians, you and I, have been given, if you like, the same authority that Jesus had because we are part of the first resurrection. Did you notice that in that reading, it talks about the first resurrection? Well, when the resurrection is referred to here, it most likely means the passing of from death to life. 
And whenever that's recorded in the New Testament, it's recorded as being someone who wasn't a Christian and has become a Christian. They've moved from death to life. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So during this time, during the last 2,022 years, we can recall it the millennium if you like, Christians are given authority and power over the enemy. And it is the Christian's joy and responsibility to live out that kingdom life in the face of all opposition, disruption, and persecution. So what I want to focus on in the remaining time we have left is what does it mean to reign with Christ? We are told that they, that is Christ's followers, in verse 4b, lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And earlier in Revelation 5.10, if you like a replay, we read this. Christ has made us kings and priests of our God that we should reign on the earth. Paul says to the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians that because of our union with Christ, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places where Christ himself is reigning. So we are reigning with him. So what does it mean to reign with Christ in a world of evil and ungodliness? It's not just being with Jesus in a heavenly place. We are planted here on the earth. We are given his power and authority to stand and fight against evil. And we assume that same authority that Jesus had when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to give you a modern, a, a kind of a modern example of that. What do I mean to reign with Christ in the face of opposition? Well, in 1860, when Abraham Lincoln became the President of the United States, it was a time of great civil unrest, and the nation was under threat of being torn apart. Abraham Lincoln needed the right person as his Secretary of War and he chose the most contentious man that he knew at the time, someone he personally didn't get on with at all. His name was Edwin M. Stanton. Now, although Stanton and Lincoln were not friends, Lincoln realized that Stanton had the intelligence and the tenacity and the gifting to assume that great responsibility of office. Stanton, if you like, became the official commander-in-chief of the army and the navy of that day. He was, if you like, to reign with President Lincoln, to reign alongside him. Having been enemies, once Lincoln chose Stanton, they quite quickly became respected friends. Now, President Lincoln eventually praised the work of Stanton. This is what he said to him, about him. This is what Lincoln said about Stanton. He is the rock on the beach of our national ocean against which the breakers dash and roar without ceasing. He fights back the enemy waters and prevents them from undermining and overwhelming the land. Gentlemen, I do not see how he survives this. Why is not crushed and torn to pieces? 
Without him, we would be destroyed. What a compliment. And Edward Stanton himself, a few days after President Lincoln's assassination, bearing in mind he used to be an enemy, if you like, of President Lincoln. This is what he said about him as he was lying in state. He said, Now here belongs a man for the ages. There lies here the most perfect ruler of men that the world has ever seen. Now in a similar way, Christ came into this world to reach out to humanity and to make us the offer of becoming God's friends. Paul put it this way, for if we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? When one accepts God's amazing love in Christ, God promotes us. He calls us into his cabinet to become his friends, to become his ambassadors, his ministers of war. We are to realize our position in Christ against the evil in the world. We are to recognize we've been given authority and power to overcome the works of the enemy. So as far as Christians are concerned, Satan is bound. We have authority and power over that evil. I wonder if you can hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to you and me. We are reigning with Christ when we resist temptation. We are reigning with Christ when we freely forgive people who hurt us. We are reigning with Christ when we pray for our enemies. We are reigning with Christ when we uphold the cause of the poor, the widows and the orphans. We are reigning with Christ when we lay hands on the sick and we see them getting well. We are reigning with Christ when we cast out devils from people. We are reigning with Christ when we freely give to those in need. We are reigning with Christ when we see victories through prayer persevering prayer. We are reigning with Christ when we open our home to strangers. We are reigning with Christ when we wake up every day and we live a life fully surrendered to God and his calling on our lives. This is what will be recorded in the books. So, it is, at the end of Revelation 20... We hear about a final judgment, and it says books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the question is, for you and me, is my name in the book of life? Is it? The book of life is the set of names of those who will live with God forever in heaven. 
It is the role of those who are saved. It is the role of those who are filled with God's Spirit and reigning with Christ. It's as if our works are recorded in these books because we are reigning with Christ. Now, the question that we want to be sure of is, is my name written in that book? So the question I want to ask us is, am I saved? Do I know that I'm a child of God? Have I received God's Spirit? Am I reigning with Christ? Many years ago, uh, my father, Ian, um, wrote his own autobiography. He then had it published, here's a copy of it, and given to myself and my three siblings. It is called Portraits from a Pepper Pot, IPC, an improbable pedagogue. IPC is my dad's initials, Ian Parry Campbell. An improbable pedagogue. Pedagogue means teacher. He was a headmaster and a schoolmaster and all that sort of thing. And the book is divided into chapters about his life in all the schools that he's been involved in, even from the beginning of his school days at a place called Canford. It's an impressive document for a hugely successful and much-loved man. When I received my copy, guess what I did? I opened it to see if my name was mentioned in his book. Not to read his story, but to find out whether I featured in his book. When you think of it, that is so self-centered and it's so stupid, isn't it? I'm his firstborn son. Why would I not be in his book? And I actually found my first little photograph as a little boy here sitting um, on my mum's knee next to my dad. And when I flicked through it, I found that I was on quite a few pages. Well, it's the same about the book of life, isn't it? You either know you're God's child or you don't. You either know you've been saved by the blood of the Lamb or you haven't. When we are saved, God's Holy Spirit comes to live within us and gives us that reassurance or guarantee of our sonship. He gives us the power and the confidence to reign with Christ. This is what Paul writes in the book of Romans. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption as sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, that we might reign with him. 
dear friends, may each one of us here today be completely confident and encouraged that we are in God's book of life by knowing that we are God's child, by knowing that he died for us and has given us that assurance and the power and authority to reign with Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, um, even though I'm in Taupo, as it were, today, I pray for my friends here at Central that you would pour out your Spirit upon them, that you would give them that reassurance that they are God's children, that you would give them power and authority to reign with you, to heal the sick, to forgive those who hurt them, to welcome strangers into their homes, to do all those things that Christ did. So, Lord, bless us, I pray. Pour out your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.